Hey, it's Taylor from Free Lunch here. Before we get into today's episode, we are at the end of the year and we are doing a rating and review drive. So if you have enjoyed this year's episodes of Free Lunch, please head over to Apple or Spotify, leave a positive rating and review, take a screenshot or just let us know the name you left it under and then send it to me at taylor at readthepeak.com. And we will send three people who leave ratings and reviews a peak merch pack, including a cap, a tote bag, and a sweater. That's taylor at readthepeak.com. Thanks so much for listening this year. Really appreciate you all and appreciate your support in growing the show. Now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Brightninka. So Sarah, I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, crypto is back. Crypto is is once again having a moment. We were in a long winter there for for a while, but uh, the price of Bitcoin is surging. And may- maybe we're far enough away now from the collapse of a lot of those NFT projects uh, around a year ago, a year and a half ago, that people have moved into more reliable, less volatile crypto assets and the market is, is coming back a bit, which uh, leads me to ask the question, what is next for crypto? You know, this is we've been through many of these boom and bust cycles now, uh, but the industry as a whole really doesn't seem to want to die like it's it's not going anywhere it'll often go through these winter periods but it does seem to keep coming back and and every time it comes back it seems to come back a little bit stronger so i think it's important that we look at where we're headed now as we come out of this latest down cycle in the crypto market and what's next for the sector and we have a a great guest on to talk us through that really probably no one more knowledgeable or better to explain what the future of crypto holds than Brian Armstrong. He's the founder and CEO of Coinbase, which is now the largest uh, American cryptocurrency exchange. And he's here with us in Toronto to talk about what's next for crypto. Brian, thanks so much for coming on Free Lunch. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I want to start with uh, a question that is precipitated by a lot of the news that we've heard about crypto over the past year or two, FTX, Binance, a lot of volatility, uh, a lot of bad headlines, I guess. If I'm a regular person who is just considering crypto as something I might want to get into or uh, might be interested in, what's your message for that person as to why they should still care about crypto? Why is crypto still something that people should be interested in? Yeah, well, first of all, we have to acknowledge there's been some bad actors in this space. And Kind of like the early days of the internet, there's, there's been some scams, there's been some fraud. It, it, it was the wild west of innovation that attracted some, some bad people. Um, but it's a misconception that crypto is primarily bad people. Uh, the best data we have on this is from third parties like Chainalysis that look at the industry and their data suggests that about 1% um, of a- activity in crypto is for illicit purposes, just by comparison, for example, the U.S. dollar is about 4% illicit activity. So mm. um, there's not anything in crypto that's uniquely uh, crime-ridden. Um, and companies like Coinbase that have taken a compliance-focused approach from the earliest days um, and other you know, centralized players in the space that are onshore, they're regulated, they're trying to follow the rules, 
These are the companies that are going to stand the test of time. Now, so what are the other 99% of people doing with this? Because, um, by the way, in Canada, about 15% of the population has tried crypto. The, um, the OSC has put out a survey that which indicated that in the next year about 30 percent of canadians are planning to try using crypto uh, that's a pretty substantial portion of the population in america about 52 million americans have tried crypto so um, it's a material thing that is now sort of crossing the chasm and becoming more and more mainstream so what why are people interested in it well one reason is that they're looking at bitcoin as a kind of new form of digital gold that is resistant uh, to inflation um, it is um, you know, more fair and free and it's the scarcity of it is guaranteed, right? So Bitcoin is sort of this version of digital gold. They're also using many other things in crypto like stable coins for payments, especially in areas where the traditional financial system is kind of slow or inefficient, like in cross-border payments or very small payments. Um, they're also experimenting with things like NFTs that are, you know, having creative people allowing them to have a direct relationship with their fans and be compensated for it. And so we can kind of go on down the list. You know, crypto started off with just Bitcoin. It then, in kind of a new form of money, it's now become sort of a new set of financial services. And in the future, where I think we're, we're going to get with Web3 is actually crypto as a new type of application platform on the internet for all kinds of things, including non-financial services related things. So um, it's early days. It's new. We've cleaned out a lot of the bad actors. Now that regulatory clarity is emerging, I think we can cl uh, close that chapter and We've seen crypto prices actually rally in the last 30 days, I think, partly because of that closing of the chapter around getting some of the bad actors out. I'm curious, of, you know, you listed a few different applications there. Um, and I'm curious which you think are the most promising, because, you know, we've, we've seen sort of NFTs. If you put money into NFTs, you know, a year and a half ago, you're probably not so happy about that decision. But then, you know, when it comes to payments, maybe that's a whole other ballgame. So where do you see the most valuable real world applications for crypto coming from yeah so of course trading is going to continue and i think more and more people will do that institutions are coming in and you know pension funds and various asset managers um but i think i'll list a few of the use cases that i think have already gotten some traction in the in the say tens of billions of dollars of value and then i'll list i'll, I'll mention a couple others that i think are on the future horizon yeah. so the ones that have already gotten some traction today in the tens of billions so stable coins um probably has about Actually, maybe like 125 billion or so locked up in in value. Um, DeFi, which stands for decentralized finance, kind of making uh, ways for people to do borrowing and lending and decentralized exchanges, things like that. That's gotten probably 50 billion or so of value locked up in it. Um, NFTs, despite having come down a lot, which you're correct about, um, I think it's still maybe in the 10 billion plus category. And so hmm. I think there's something very real there. What we're seeing happen with a lot of these things, by the way, it's kind of like in the early internet, we had like a dot-com boom and then bust. Crypto has gone through four of these cycles now in the last 10 years where there's kind of irrational exuberance. Things get a little too over-optimistic. They come crashing down. Then things are too pessimistic. And then you go to the next cycle. And But every time the floor is always, is always higher in each of these cycles. And so if you zoom out, crypto is kind of going one way, which is up and to the right in terms of adoption. But it has a very... This guy has a lot of ups and downs, which we've seen this happen with a lot of high potential new technologies, whether it's AI or the internet or a variety of things. They, ha they often go through summers and winters. Um, so a few more things that are on the horizon in terms of utility. So one big area is around decentralized identity, uh, which is allowing people to kind of really 
store their own information and not having it locked up in a big tech company. Once you have decentralized identity, you can create um, a follower graph and start to have decentralized social media hmm. um, emerge. Um, I think that there's new types of uh, organizations people are forming, commonly referred to as DAOs, uh, decentralized autonomous organizations. This is kind of like if you want to have a group of people come together uh, to have governance or voting or some sort of new like internet based. Um, it's kind of like a, a Delaware C Corp native, native to the internet would be a DAO. Hmm. Um, and that's an exciting area. Uh, we can kind of go on down the list, but crypto is fundamentally, it's a technology to update the financial system uh, in, all the, in all those ways, but it's also a way to build this new application platform on the internet where you're not just reading and writing data, you can also own a piece of it um, and that's what people are commonly referring to as Web3. So I think that's going to be another big trend. I totally understand the use of crypto as like a hedge, as you mentioned, in uh, economies where maybe there isn't a good alternative currency-wise, like where there's hyperinflation or where there's you know other kind of issues with the currency. Mm -hmm. And so in a place like Canada where we don't have those problems and there are better alternatives, which is just the, the Canadian dollar, do those use cases kind of fall into this idea of it opening the path for these decentralized platforms, kind of as you mentioned? Yeah. So I think in many parts of the developed world, there actually is pretty good financial infrastructure. Let's not um, put that aside or try to ignore it in any way. I think it's actually a luxury that a lot of uh, folks in developed markets um, kind of take for granted. And um, as somebody, I actually spent a year, about a year living in Buenos Aires, Argentina, I saw a country that had gone through hyperinflation and what it did to the psychology of the people there and everything. Hmm. And that's part of what helped me get excited about crypto when I first saw it. Now, I don't want to say this is just an emerging market phenomenon because, or where, there, where there's higher risk of inflation, because I mean, frankly, in the US right now, um, the largest economy in the world, there's there was pretty high inflation in the last year or more. And people, it's a major issue on people's minds, um, you know, deficit spending and inflationary um, expansion of the money supply, stimulus um, of the economy, these kind of things. And so this might be a bit of a uh, lofty statement, but I actually think that crypto has a very important role to play in emerging in, in developed markets, excuse me, in terms of um, being a check and balance against um, deficit spending, excessive inflation, um, you know, for a country like uh, Canada, it's, uh, they've actually been quite remarkably stable, especially even f through the last like financial crisis in 2008, 2009. But in the U.S., um, there was a lot of loss of trust in banks and institutions. And I think any if you go back and study history, like Ray Dalio has a great book on this called The Changing World Order. Mm. And he looks at, you know, who was the predominant empire and what, who had the reserve currency status. And, you know, today that's the United States, used to be um, the British, and it used to be the Dutch, and you can kind of go back in history. And what all, this inevitable pattern happens in history where the, the, you know, the reigning world order country who has the reserve currency, which is an incredible advantage and privilege, inevitably sort of overprints it, um, abuses it. It's too painful um, in societies where you know, to actually have austerity and cut spending and balance your budget. And so the, the natural tendency, especially in democracies and everything, is to kind of um, to overprint. Every administration has kind of done it. So anyway, long story short, I think crypto is actually potentially, um, an, it's an important check and balance on this. It potentially could even 
extend Western civilization <laughs> in a very important way. How does it serve as a check and balance for deficit spending? Because that's yeah. super interesting because every Western and a lot of economies all over the world are, are overspending at this point. So how does that specifically play out? Well, very specifically, um, when citizens become, when there's a loss of trust in the value of the fiat currency, they will move their assets into Bitcoin because it has guaranteed scarcity. Um, it's deflationary. And it's, it's not, you know, sometimes people ask me, well, is it really deflationary? How do you know that the fixed supply of it? And, and the answer is yes, because you don't have to trust any person or you know, government or a set of laws of, of men, you're trusting the laws of math, uh, which are much more immutable. Um, and so, yes, I think essentially people will move their, whether they're institutions, retail investors, any, they'll move more of their assets into uh, things with guaranteed scarcity like Bitcoin. If you accept that uh, idea and you want to use crypto or Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation, what's your advice to people on how to protect themselves from the volatility that you see in the price of something like Bitcoin, which, you know, we had inflation, the price of Bitcoin went down. Now inflation's coming down and the price of Bitcoin is going up. Do you have to take a longer term view? What's your uh, advice if you're looking at that? Yeah. So a couple of thoughts. Um, so one is that just like gold or something like that, it's going to have some amount of volatility um, in Bitcoin. And because there is no um, central bank kind of adjusting interest rates or something like that. So it's decentralized. You know, uh, if you believe in that thesis, you'll you'll think that it'll go and it'll be in an upward channel over time, although there could be volatility in any particular quarter or year. Um, but, you know, Bitcoin is just one as one asset in crypto. Uh, there's there's many of these. And, you know, this is a little bit of something on the horizon there's actually people experimenting with what are called um, not not stable coins, which are typically fiat backed, but you know they'll have the same underlying inflation issues of that fiat currency. There's people experimenting with a new category of crypto called flat coins, which are intended to uh, preserve purchasing power um, with a very stable asset. And th this gets actually into some. There's a lot of complexity about how people are designing these and tracking. Um, the are they backed by anything? So. It depends which ones you're talking about. Some mm. there's some of them that are being designed uh, where they have a basket of commodities underlying it. So if you look at how um, interesting, yeah, the CPI metric is calculated in these different, you know, the purchasing power metric is obviously uh, usually published by central governments. Um, it's basically just looking at the price of things like, you know, real estate and energy and commodities like copper and wheat and things like that. Um, and so some of them are taking an approach of trying to hold a basket of these underlying assets. Um, that's what's actually backing the the asset. Others are taking um, a different approach, um, which is more complex. It involves um, uh, tranching of of risk into different categories, and it's actually a more complex thing. But I, I think these are still early, but I think they offer the ability in the future to have truly a better form of money in crypto. Today we have digital gold, and we have fiat-backed stablecoins. But in the future, I think with flat coins, we, crypto may actually have a tr something they can rightfully claim is a better form of money that preserves purchasing power and, and is stable. Hmm. Imagine money pegged to the cost of living. This is Yeah, That'd this is the nice. first time I hear about flat coins. So we're going to have to do an episode on that at some point. I am curious, though, to get into some of uh, questions about Coinbase as a business. Uh, because, you know, I, I remember reading that in 2021 when crypto was really ripping, Coinbase was very profitable. Yeah. And 2022, less so. Uh, 
and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe it's because the a lot of the revenue for Coinbase comes from fees for trading, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look ahead into the future, do you see that still being the main generator of revenue for Coinbase? Or are you trying to move into other products and services? And what does that look like? Yeah, so our revenue has really started to diversify away from just trading fees. And this was a very conscious effort that we took. So yeah, a little bit of history. So in 2021, uh, we, we became a publicly listed company. Crypto was on a tear. Um, we did about $8 billion in revenue. I think maybe three, three or three and a half billion of that was profit. So we were very, extremely high margin and high profit in that up market. And that's sort of how trading fees typically are. It's sort of feast or famine. Like in, a, in an up market, you, it's very profitable. In down market, trading volumes come down quite a lot. So in 2022, we, with the macro environment uh, coming down, interest rates coming up, basically all growth tech stocks um, came down. Crypto was sort of treated a little bit like a growth um, tech stock, if you will, but it, you know, even though they're commodities. Um, and so there was a big sell-off in crypto as well. So in 2022, 2023, we really um, sharpened our pencils and really cut a lot of the cost out of the business to operate it. Um, you know, that was a difficult process. We had a couple of headcount reductions. We reduced spend, spend on a lot of our vendors. So in Q2 or in Q3 of this year, we were EBITDA positive. We did generate some cash. Q3, we were 2 million short of being net income positive. So we, in the depths of the bear market, we were able to get the business to essentially financial health. Mm. Um, and now just in the last 30, 60 days, we've seen the market really rally and start to come back. And so it, does, it feels a bit like this crypto winter has started to thaw. Last thing I'll say on that is, yeah, so anyway, trading fees used to be about 95% of our revenue. It's now about 50% of our revenue. The other 50% is what we call subscription and services. So it's really more based on, um, you know, custody fees, uh, stablecoin, interest uh, yield, um, staking, sort of things that are more based on assets under management instead of trading volumes. And mm -hmm. so it's a really healthy diversification of the revenue now. So if FTX is gone and Binance is out of Canada and the US, who are Coinbase's true competitors? Well, so it depends on which category you're looking at, because we, we're an exchange, but we're also a custodian. We also have a self-custodial wallet. We have a commerce payment thing. Um, so in each of those categories, we have different competitors. Um, you know, let's just take custody as one example. So um, we have some competitors that are really traditional financial services firms, like um, many of the big players like Fidelity are sort of building their own and NASDAQ are building their own um, custody solutions. So we compete with traditional financial service firms. We also compete with fintechs um, in some cases. Uh, there's also pure play crypto companies that are doing custody. And so, um, you know, we can, that's just one example of the range of competitors we have in that market. Um, but I'm, yeah, I mean, frankly, I'm, I'm glad to see that some of the offshore regulated exchanges have now sort of been taken back to reality or in some cases just um, shut down due to, due to the fraud and their evasion of the laws because that was a big issue for a long time where in the absence of regulatory clarity in uh, major markets, the, you know, the companies trying to fo follow the rules were actually kind of penalized, slowed down. And so a lot of the customers just did make use of these offshore unregulated exchanges, which have now, has now resulted in consumer harm. So anyway, I'm excited to see that as regulatory clarity merges, these things will be built onshore. Customers will have better protection. Well, speaking of regulation, I'm curious what your experience in, in Canada has been like, because I think your official launch here was earlier this year. Is that 
correct? Yeah. Uh, now, I've had a Coinbase account since 2013, so I guess, I don't know. I, 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 <laughs> I jumped, at, jumped the queue. Yeah. But uh, I'm curious, what is the environment like here when it comes to regulation? What's your experience been like? Yeah, well, we have been live and technically in Canada for a while, but it was very limited in terms of our payment options and things like that. The thing that we announced in August um, was we completed our pre-registration undertaking with the regulator. Um, we launched in integration with Interac. We hired a new um, country manager, Lucas Matheson, um, who's, an, who's an incredible executive and leader uh, formerly at Shopify. Um, and we now have about 180 employees in uh, Canada. So we've really made a big investment in the market, especially as regulatory clarity emerges. And our interaction with the regulators has been really fruitful and positive to date, um, both with the, the OSC, who's been a great partner, and um, the OSFI or OSFI at the federal level. So, um, you know, there, there's still more... Um, details that need to be kind of clarified about certain aspects of crypto and how stable coins and um, staking will work and things like that. But in general, um, we feel like there's regulatory clarity emerging, a productive relationship with regulators, good integration with payment rails, and incredible access to talent where we'll hopefully be creating more jobs here. One question that I have is like, how do you reconcile, because everyone's asking for like this clear regulation, just so everyone kind of knows what the rules are. But then if we get kind of too regulated, kind of to the point where it's more like traditional banking, where does crypto then maintain an advantage if it kind of works against almost this idea of decentralization, if it's kind of acting more like a financial mm. institution? Yeah. Well, the, so the synthesis of these ideas is actually really important. That, that's a great really great question to bring up. So the centralized actors in, in crypto, like exchanges, custodians, um, companies like Coinbase, um, they are going to, you know, they, they are going to and should follow the best practices and rules of traditional financial services, including KYC, you know, anti-money laundering. Um, know your customer for anyone. Yeah, know your customer. Anti I have to get off the acronym, sorry. Um, anti-money laundering, transaction monitoring, you know, essentially working with uh, law enforcement to ensure that uh, illicit activity is reported and, and stopped. Um, now, even though the centralized players are operating in a regulated world, um, we're all running on the same decentralized protocols. So this is a really important and nuanced distinction. So if you're unhappy with Coinbase, for instance, um, you know, you can withdraw all of your crypto off the platform. Uh, you can use another provider. You can even custody it yourself if you want, which is an important distinction. In the banking world, you don't have that option. Um, and When you say custody, what do you mean specifically? Um, so s storing your crypto, you, you kind of have an option of, you know, you can use a, a centralized service like Coinbase. Um, you can also do self-custody, which is essentially um, storing the private keys yourself. And Coinbase actually offers a self-custodial wallet too for customers who want to do that. You, you know, you have to have a little bit more um, responsibility of storing, like let's say, a twelve-word phrase, or if you, you know, if you lose, the, if you lose the secret phrase, like you've lost your money, right? So, in that sense, it's more responsibility for the customer, but it's also the ability for them to be totally self-sovereign. And and in those cases, um, you know, those those are software companies; they're not financial service businesses because they're not actually taking possession of any customer funds. So anyway, long story short, crypto is it's still, it's still decentralized and benefiting from this kind of permissionless access and innovation because 
it is a, it's a decentralized protocol. Co countries and companies all over the world can integrate it with it, just like email or the internet or something like that. Um, and if you, you can choose, if you want, to use a centralized provider and you'll go through all the same KYC that you would at a brokerage or a bank. Um, but if you don't like that one, you can move to any other platform. And that sort of creates a nice, healthy, um, you know, low barrier to switching or low, low switching cost, which is, I think, one of the best ways to get customer satisfaction as opposed to higher, high, high switching cost kind of leads to local oligopolies or monopolies. I want to end off on, I guess, sort of a higher level question about what motivates you. Because, uh, you know, a lot of people in crypto, it seems, are driven by almost a philosophical commitment to decentralization and privacy and these sorts of ideas. And, you know, obviously beyond building a great business and, you know, all that good stuff. Is there a higher level goal beyond that that motivates you? Yeah. So I, the thing I'm really passionate about is economic freedom. And I can define that real quick. Um, but I see basically crypto as the best technology or tool that's been invented to help increase economic freedom. You know, economic freedom is kind of um, a wonky topic that uh, you can look it up on Wikipedia. It's something economists talk about, just like GDP or something like that. But it's essentially a measure of the different countries of the world. And it, and it says like, you know, how well enforced is our property rights and rule of law? Um, is there free trade? How sound is the currency? Um, to what extent is like corruption and bribery prevalent in that economy versus a lack of that? And this concept of property rights and rule of law and sound money is actually, it sounds kind of highfalutin, but it's actually this incredibly powerful foundation um, in economies where, you know, it's, it's basically this idea that if, if people try, they work hard and they try good things, are they going to be able to keep the upsides of their labor or could it be you know, captured or taken away from them somehow. And there's many people in the, in the around the world who've had this issue when, you know, fleeing a country or something gets seized from them. Um, economic freedom is also positively correlated with lots of things we want in society, like not just economic growth, but also like self-reported happiness, better treatment of the environment, having less corruption and war, thing, like things you may not even expect. And so I actually think that economic freedom is this incredibly powerful idea. It's kind of hiding in plain sight. And how do we how might we inject economic freedom into the countries all over around the world, especially the ones who don't have very much of it? Well, crypto is beautifully suited to enable those things. Like if you want more property rights, crypto allows anybody with a smartphone and an internet connection to store their own wealth in a way that it can't be taken away from them. Uh, crypto is inherently global, so it enables free trade. You know, Bitcoin has guaranteed scarcity, so it's, it is by definition sound money. It's, it's deflationary, kind of like a new gold standard. Um, so you can kind of go on down the list, but... I, I think that's that's what really excites me. Um, it really aligns with my philosophy of how you know you you might do a ton of good in the world and really like lift a bunch of people up out of poverty and just kind of inject good financial infrastructure uh, into many countries around the world. Hmm. Okay, well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us on Free Lunch. That was really great. Thank you. Well, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. If you enjoyed this and want to get all of our future episodes, please do subscribe by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you want to find past episodes, you can find all those in our feed as well. Also, please do take a moment to leave a positive review on Apple or Spotify. That helps us grow the show, and we really do appreciate it. Thanks to Brian Armstrong for joining us this week, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Free Lunch.